as we approach the end of Advent, um, I want to acknowledge that this is a season, time in the year, that is a period of tension for most of us. Um, I think uh, to start, I think we're, many of us are holding the tension of all the experiences of gratitude and thanksgiving during 2002, alongside all the experiences of sorrow and pain, uh, all in the same year. And in fact, during this Advent, Advent season, our notion of time is held in tension, in lots of different kinds of tension. The tension between 2002 and 2020, uh, not 2022, <laughs> and 2023. And similarly, also, uh, between, uh, we're holding the tension of different moments in the narrative and the story of God that is anchored both in the past, in the present, as well in the future, as well as the future. So for example, we're, we're, we're look, when we remember and we look back at the birth of Christ in the incarnation, and we also look forward to the second coming of Christ, to the full consummation of the kingdom of God, knowing that this world that we live in right now it will one day pass away and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. And we, we hold that hope and tension as well, being fully present to the suffering and the tragedy and the absurdity of the world that is around us. And one of the things that I really appreciate about our church is that we're not of the sort where we just want to, you know, forget about whatever's going on here and just kind of look forward to heaven. We're, we're very much... Uh, about heaven as well, but we also care about what's happening in front of us here. So we want to very, uh, do kind of very much a both um, and. And if uh, you remember stuff that I've preached in years prior, uh, you know that I oftentimes will talk a lot about liminal spaces, um, and I'm going to do that again today. And um, like many of you know, a liminal space is that space between what was and the next. And we're, we're kind of in this no person's land because we're, we're neither here nor there. And a lot of times the holiday season feels like that. And during the past year, for example, um, when I think of liminal spaces that many of us here occupy, I know that many of us have changed jobs this year. Right? I'm, I'm definitely one of them. Many of us have lost jobs. Of us, uh, even though we might have a job, is pr we're looking to, probably looking for a new job next year, and that very much is an example of a liminal space. I know during this past year, some of us were pregnant. I know right now, some of us are pregnant now, um, and for those that were pregnant, now you don't have much sleep, and uh, for those who are pregnant now, you're uh, not exactly sure what the next season of life, what 2023 is going to look like. And also during this past year, a lot of us have lost friends and loved ones, like both uh, concretely and also symbolically. A lot of us have survived some painful betrayal at the hands of people we thought were friends. And some of us have lost other kinds of form, uh, other forms of uh, loss as well. And I know that many of us here, even in this room, um, haven't gone to church in a long time. And I'm so grateful that not only are you open to uh, joining and integrating uh, into a church community again, but that you might have even considered us to be that church community. And we're really looking forward to engaging in that process with you as you integrate into our community for the upcoming weeks, months, and Lord willing, um, years to come. So all in all, I think it's fair to say that the entire Christian journey is 
uh, accurately and rightly understood as a journey in in between, a journey in liminality, where we are perpetually between the what was and the what's next, where the old self is in the process of dying and the new self is in the process of being renewed day after day. And this is where Christians belong here on the side of heaven until Christ returns and restores us to our true home. And this is also the testimony of the Advent season. And how do I know this? Because the liminal space is where faith is born, right? You cannot have faith in Christ if we don't know first how to live between the past and the future. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, and this is the famous chapter on faith. And I would also suggest that this is also the chapter on liminality. And what I'm going to argue later this, after, uh, this morning is uh, it's also, I believe, the chapter on love. So I'm going to read through a good portion of this chapter with you, and then I'm going to invite us all to just uh, sit with the passage for a few moments and to reflect on how this passage of Scripture in particular might speak into your life as you hold 2002 and 2000, 2022 and 2023 uh, in your hearts and in your minds. Let's start. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and I added a little commentary here uh, in parentheses, the things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, and by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
for he has prepared for them a city. So I'm just going to, uh, we're going to park here in this last uh, uh, passage of scripture from verse 13 to 16. And just for a few moments, I, I want to invite us to ask the Lord to um, speak to us through this passage and possibly, um, and during worship, I think what stood out to me was verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. What does it look like to trust God without knowing that we may not receive what we have been promised? Knowing that we may not receive what we've been hoping for, not just this past year, but probably for many years to come. How do we hold that together? Let's just hold this in silence. We'll have a little music in the background, and then we'll continue. it was important for us to give a little more time, give a little more space for that. You know, I, I think uh, knowing the limited, uh, knowing what I know of many of your stories, um, I think this idea of um, unmet hopes, dreams, and promises, it's, it's a thing, you know, and Uh, whether it is in the context of you know, psychotherapy or whether it's the context of spiritual direction, friendships, pastor relationships, you know, stuff like that. I feel like all of us, all of us, are holding these long-term disappointments with God. And these questions of, why did God allow this to happen? You know, and and when we get into it, a lot of times we make excuses for God. You know, like maybe theological excuses. We also practice different forms of avoidance. Well, you know, well God is good. You know, but it's it's almost like this kind of thing that we just decide, and um, it will uh, it will get triggered at times, and um, and we don't know exactly what to do with it. Um, uh, I'm not going to promise an answer today, but but I do. I'm hoping that we can at least start the conversation, so that um, all of us, e- even those, even that side of us, could uh, come to the light and um, um, and come come to the uh, come to the fore and can potentially uh, uh, receive uh, God's light and God's grace. says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So these are the giants of our faith, right? These are the people whose faith so pleased God that he modified it formally into the word, uh, uh, into scripture, so that all of us can remember. Um, They modeled and embodied what faith is, an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. They obeyed, and they were faithful, and they survived 
not having received, at least fully, promised to them. So perhaps this conversation is with the starting point that maybe the Christian faith is not an instrumental faith. Maybe the Christian faith is not an instrumental faith that we can use, that we can get what we want at the end of heaven. It isn't this triumphalistic narrative of me doing great things, me doing, having great faith, and then conquering and winning, living life happily. That's Disneyland. I like Disneyland. <laughs> but, but, but that's not life. <laughs> that's probably why I like Disneyland, too. Um, and to tell you the truth, I'm not sure why so many Christian testimonies fit this mold. Right? Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we don't necessarily uh, hear that too much here in our church. I still hear it on Christian radio, and I have a love radio. And when I hear these kinds of stories, I get it feels artificial because it doesn't it doesn't match what I see in life. It doesn't match what I see in the counseling room. It doesn't match what I see in the world. It doesn't match history. And I've had conversations with uh, Lydia and Sydney about the Holocaust. It does not match history. And most importantly, it also doesn't match what I see in Scripture. Right. So the difficult reality for many of us is that even for Christians who are faithfully obeying and following Jesus, we're really not entitled to anything on this side of heaven. God owes us nothing. The world owes us nothing. Other people owe us nothing. Life is chaotic and cruel to both the godly and ungodly. And that includes Jesus Christ as well, all the way through his life. And this is one of the many reasons why our church is justice, because we want to do what we can to make the world a little bit place, a little bit more of a just place. And we want to do that in Jesus' name. And I know that many of us, especially those of us who lived difficult lives, who were not born into many privileges, who had a fine without much help, you already know this to be true. are entitled to very much in this life, Christian or not. Which brings me to the heart of what I hope to share with you this morning. Now, because we're not entitled to anything in this life, I want to encourage us to everything in life that we consider good, everything in life that we consider valuable and meaningful, not as something we like to, not as something that we earn, but rather as a gift that we receive. A gift that we can receive with a grateful heart. Uh, last year I preached uh, from the parable of the dutiful servant in Luke chapter 17. And in that parable, uh, I believe Jesus is drawing the distinction between what comes to us by right and privilege as gift. And my hope for all of us is that as we approach and continue and enter in in earnest into the holiday season, especially after all these years of COVID, that we might be firmly grounded in the reality that everything we have in life, relationships and friendships that we still have, because we don't have all of them anymore,
the hopes and dreams that we still have, that have found a way to be stubborn and persist all the different kinds of ways that life has tried to push it down and kick it down, that, but that are still there, that we can receive all of these things as a gift that we can, that we, to receive. And sometimes, I know some of us here know, know this reality very well, sometimes we have to lose everything, sometimes we have to hit rock bottom, before we're able to truly see and receive the gifts that's been right in front of our face all along. And my hope is that we don't need another global pandemic for us to do this again. <laughs> and I believe this perhaps is what is meant when Jesus started the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, with the following proclamation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Someone who is poor in spirit is not someone who feels like they're, they're owed something or they're entitled something. Someone who, it's someone that acknowledges they have nothing to offer and that all that they have is received. You know, the kingdom of heaven, similarly, is all gift. We have no right to it. We're not entitled to it. We can only receive it as gift. And therefore, um, Ron, Ron, Ron Rolfheiser uh, explains the following. The spiritual journey is a journey towards recognizing that everything is a gift and that we need to keep saying thanks over and over again for all the things in life that we so much take for granted, recognizing always that it is nobody's job to take care of us. And friends, when the Christian religion becomes more about protecting our rights, about defending our God-given rights, whatever the heck those God-given rights are, might be, you know, when it's all about fighting for our own injustices and not the injustices of other people, friends, this is not Christianity, right? And if we continue in this mindset, we're just continuing in a perpetual state of spiritual immaturity because from that perspective, there is little to no room for gratitude, little to no room to see life as a gift for what it is because we believe that it is our right. And perhaps if there's one thing broken about American culture, there's probably a lot of things, just like other cultures are broken too. It's this obsession with our rights. It takes us away from the heart of God, and it takes us away from the gospel. Because gratitude, fundamentally, is the basis of the spiritual life. But it's, there's more than that. Gratitude is also the basis of love. And let me explain a little bit more and land the plane this morning with a few thoughts here. So first, I would like to suggest that love is only love when it is a gift, right? So if love is given and received because we have a right to it, because we're entitled to it, because we've earned it, friends, that's not love. That's called a transaction, right? Nothing wrong with transactions. When we go to Starbucks and get a drink, that's a transaction, and I thank God every day for that, you know, for those kinds of things. But that's not love, right? That's me giving you something. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I love it. Just said, what's up? <laughs> love is very, very different from a transaction. 
And that's why even though I affirm the use of you know, language uh, related to things like social power, social privilege, I, I just finished teaching a class at Fuller on diversity and equity and justice, and I used to teach this at Biola as well. As a Christian, let me also be quick to add that we cannot see all of life only through the lens of social power and privilege, right? Because if we are to love, we have to transcend power and privilege, the power and privilege conversation, right? Because at the bottom, all of life is a gift. And the way that God judges a life well-lived isn't through power and privilege, perhaps stewardship, but it isn't ultimately about power and privilege. It's about love. Did you love well? Did you love God well? Did you love your neighbor? Did you mature in your capacity to love? The journey of becoming more like Christ, in fact, um, and this draws from Jonathan Edwards, theologian Jonathan Edwards, is to have our hearts and affections, he calls it religious affections, renewed and transformed so that what our hearts naturally love, what our hearts naturally want, is actually oriented towards love and holiness. And friends, if this is your heart and your intention, even when you lose in life, in God's eyes, you won. Right? Let me share one more thought. When we love from a place of gratitude, we are set free from the need to be the hero of the story, right? You know, our life is not a Marvel movie, although I really like the Marvel movies, and I really love collecting their pins in Disneyland and stuff, but because um, a lot of times, even when we're trying to do good things and help other people, there's this unconscious implicit positioning of ourselves as the hero, you know, where we see ourselves as the righteous, the just, the courageous, the one who protects and fights for others. And what I would like to suggest is that if we loved how Jesus loved and how G what Jesus modeled in his love, being born humbly in a major and ending his life on earth through death on the cross, that if we love like Jesus loved, we don't need to idealize ourselves as the hero anymore. We can be set free from that. And that's actually a way we can mature in our love. And the reason why we're not the hero is because Jesus is the hero, right? Like when we look at the story of Noah, when we look at the story of Sarah, the story of Abraham, they're actually not the hero. The hero of the story is God, right? So when someone looks at my story, when someone looks at your story, I would love for them to see God as the hero of your story and my story as well. Last, um, gratitude also, and now speaking more as a psychologist, it never requires us to minimize our loss or pain, right? So too many of us have, uh, when people invoke gratitude on us, it's been to uh, used in a way to minimize our hurt, and people might have said, oh, Dave, don't feel sad. You know, feel, you should, be grat you should be, uh, have gratitude for what you have, right? And I think this is actually error, erroneous and misleading because it cheapens gratitude. And the reason is because gratitude is actually the fruit of the hard inner work of facing our inner demons, right? 
Gratitude comes when we grieve well and we reach a place of acceptance and we realize that we're not entitled to anything and everything is a gift. So as we close our time together this morning, I have one more uh, reflection question. And, um, you know, perhaps for a few moments, uh, after a few moments of reflection, if you're open to it, don't feel like obligated to do this, I'd love for you to consider sharing what you might feel comfortable with a person next to you. And the question is this. Without minimizing all the loss and disappointments of this past year, what good gifts in your life can you wholeheartedly affirm and be grateful for? And we'll have a little bit of music and then uh, in a few moments we can share with the person next to us. Thank you. pray over our church community. I pray over our community here. Uh, I feel like there, for many of us, there might have been some historical, ongoing, um, very much present still, forms of hurt and disappointment that have been brought up again, anew. And Lord, we pray that, that you can be that relational home for that emotional hurt. We pray that we, as your hands and feet, as this uh, church community, spiritual community, this body of Christ, that we too can be a relational home for this, uh, uh, these experiences to be held as long as it needs to be held. Thank you for giving us this place. Jesus, I pray. Amen.